0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together we well, glad you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation. We are continuing our study that we're calling Letter from Patmos because that's where John wrote it from, was the island of Patmos. And if you're if you're new, or maybe you didn't get one, or maybe you lost your copy and you want another one, we had those study guides. So we're our letter from Patmos study guides. We have those in the hub, just as an added resource, because you know, to be honest, Revelation's kind of a thick book. There's a lot there, and we wanted to put that together just to provide as much resource and um, just kind of leading in that to to bring understanding to the. Book of Revelation, and those are free. We're not gonna charge you an arm and a leg or a little pinky toe, like that. that's a gift for us to you because again, we, we want uh, as much as we can glean from the word of God so that we would put it into practice in our everyday life. And so Revelation three starting in verse one. "'If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, "'and you will not know at what hour "'I will come against you. "'Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, "'people who have not soiled their garments "'and will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. "'The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, "'and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. "'I will confess his name before my father "'and before his angels.'" He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And as we're walking through Revelation and we're seeing the different churches that Jesus is addressing uh, to John, but he's, he's addressing the churches for John to write this down and to share with them. One of the things that we see is the city in which the church is located is kind of known for something, right? You know, we're, we're Lake of the Ozarks. We're known for a few things. Maybe something's good, maybe something's not so good, but we're known for that, we have a reputation. And the Lord is speaking to the church and sometimes he uses this city and its reputation, the things that it is known for, as a teaching point for this church. Well, the same is true for Sardis here, the church in Sardis. So if we know anything about this city, if you had to sum up Sardis just in a small little phrasing, it is known for their easy money and loose living. Sounds like a place we'd like to vacation at at times, right? Easy money, loose living, wow. I bet the tourism is huge there, right? They have a reputation for that. And we know that it was taken over. It was conquered twice in its history. First in 549 BC by a Persian king named Cyrus. Obviously, he took over some other things that we read in the Old Testament. And then also in the uh, 214 BC, it was taken over by an uh, Antiochus the Great. And then that's key because I think Jesus is going to use that history as a city and to say, hey, you're kind of like that as a church. And we know it was overtaken for a couple reasons. They were very confident. They were almost overconfident in who they were as a city, meaning where it was kind of located with some natural uh, uh, geography around it, with some cliffs and different things. They said, we don't need to be, you know, that alarmed. The natural uh, area around us will bring some protection for us. And so they were overconfident and then they weren't watchful. See, in this time you would normally have men that would stand the line or even maybe a little bit of reconnaissance where they'd go out and, and be a little bit deeper away from you know, the city so that if they saw an enemy force coming upon them, they'd had as much time as possible. But because of their overconfidence and a little bit of their apathy, they didn't have that. And that's what led to them being overtaken twice. So we have this easy money, loose living, overtaken church or city and at this time sardis the other thing about it as jesus is speaking to sardis it's kind of past its glory right? Like it's kind of been going downhill. It's not the nicest neighborhood, you know, in the city anymore. It's a little bit, you know, the, the house prices have gone down a little bit. The riffraffs come in. I don't even know who riffraff is. I think I'm riffraff a little bit, right? And so it's past its glory. It's a living on a past representation or past reputation, living in its glory days, living in the remember wins, right? Kind of like the St. Louis Cardinals, All right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The St. Louis Blues, is that better? And you don't even have an NFL team anymore. They had to get rid of their, I know, I would cry too. That would upset me, see? Out of the mouths of babes. Unlike Kansas City, where we call ourselves NFL champions, right? (laughs) But it's living on past glory. Remember when we used to be really good? Remember when life was fun and we were doing all these things? That was Sardis. And the problem is the church in Sardis was just like the city. The church was living in that easy money, loose living, right? So they had ample resources to do ministry. You know, not every church really has that problem where we have to sit around and think about what would it look like for us to really be the body of Christ? What are we gonna do with all of the money that we have and we're just sitting on reserves? Most churches don't have that problem, but Sardis was probably one of them. You know, there's a little bit of loose living that was happening, very comfortable, apathetic complacence uh, within the congregation, and they were living on past glory. Oh, you remember when we as a church, remember we used to do this and that and oh, weren't those fun days and, and we just kind of think, oh yeah, life was, is good there. We did a good work and now, now we're ready to retire. Or are we going to just take it easy and just stroll right into glory because we've done our work. See, the church in Sarda had become just like the city. And when we're reading through that, what, something that we see that's a little bit different than the other churches is there's no doctrinal problems. You know, a lot of times we as a church, we, we put that orthodoxy, remember I was talking about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. We put the idea that we have to have correct doctrine as our number one thing, which is important. Okay, don't, don't act like our orthodoxy doesn't matter. But there was no, there was no uh, doctrinal issues with this church whatsoever. The issues were more in the orthopraxy. And so there's no doctrinal issues that Jesus needs to address. There's no opposition or persecution You know, some of these churches, there were, you know, those on the outside or the Jews even that were fighting against them. And so they're having to do church under persecution and opposition. There's none of that here. There's no threat of that. But there's also no commendation either to the believers. See, a lot of times when, as we're walking through these seven churches, you hear Jesus saying, Hey, I see these good things that you're doing, but I have this against you. That is not something that Jesus said to Sardis. He's kind of looking at the church, and it's like, yeah, I guess you're a church. Technically, you meet together. You're doing a few things, and you're just kind of going through the motions. You have this reputation of being alive, but really, you're kind of dead. Like, I can't even find something good to talk about you. You've really just, it almost feels like you've just kind of given up. Just kind of lost your way about this. And there's no opposition, there's no persecution, which is really kind of odd to think about in this Roman Empire controlled area. Why would there not be any opposition or persecution? It wasn't worth attacking because it presented no significant threat to the enemy. So if your life is really comfortable, and everything's just going your way, and it was like, ah, you know, as I'm trying to follow Jesus with my life, it's a smooth road. Don't always take that as a blessing from God. That might be that the enemy sees no threat in you, and the best thing to do to you is leave you alone, because you're not gonna do anything to threaten what he's trying to bring about in the world. And I think at times there's whole churches that can have that mentality. Well, there's no threat, so why attack it? Why bring opposition and persecution and get it? Because the the worst thing that the enemy would wanna do is to provoke some type of faith or courage or boldness that would be needed, a dependency upon the Lord of how to move and work in that. So sometimes the greatest thing that the enemy can do to us as followers of Jesus is just let us be. Let us continue to live in our apathy and our complacentness. Let us keep looking back at our past represent- reputation, living in our past glory. If we just all sit around and just talk about our remember wins, you know what we're not doing? A fresh work of God that he has for us. We're not pressing in, as Paul would say in Philippians 3. We're not looking for the new thing that God wants to do. We've just kind of become comfortable with who we are. True story, not that the rest of it hasn't been, but true story, just want to clarify it. We were, me and my wife, uh, in our first ministry job, we were looking at churches we were candidating to be a youth pastor, and we went out of state, not even gonna name the state to try to be uh, sensitive to them and careful, but we went out of state to another church that we were considered to be hired as their youth pastor, and the city was growing and that was one of the huge things that they talked about, like, oh, our city's growing by leaps and bounds and da, da, da. And, and we were sitting at dinner, and there's like the pastor, and there's elders of the church, and I'm just like this little peon, you know, wannabe youth pastor. And I was younger, so I was a little more of a spitfire. And, and I said, well, what, what do you guys have vision-wise for the church as, you, as the city is growing to accommodate and reach these new people? Kid, okay, do you not. The pastor looks at me and says, well, we really don't have a desire to grow or anything. We're just kind of comfortable with where we're at. My wife kicks me under the table. <laughs> like I didn't understand that that would be an issue for our heart to want to reach people. Like she's kicking me under the table. So here I am getting kicked in the shin, which is one of the worst things that happened in the world, trying to keep a straight face to this pastor who just like laid out the, yeah, this is going to be a deal breaker for us completely but they become comfortable. We like where we're at. We like the people that we're with. We don't want people that are different than us and and new people are weird and they smell funny. Sorry if you're new, you really don't, I'm just teasing. we, We don't want that in our church and it's like, well, what you don't want is a move of God then. What you don't want is spiritual transformation. What you don't want is to see people who are children of wrath now being called and adopted as children of God. Like, understand what you don't want. So, we didn't go to that church. <laughs> but that's the problem that we're seeing here in Sardis. It's, it's just becoming this comfortable country club. And I pray that it would never be said of Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks. That we would always press in, yeah, we're gonna remember the past, right? I am so grateful for the church that we were. I was just talking to Cliff outside. And the, not even the foundation, but just the building of the ministry here under his tenure as the senior pastor has been phenomenal. And it's been easy, in a sense, for me to come in. Like I feel like I'm just putting like curtains on the windows that he's done so much. And the health of our church is because of that man back there. And it's been a wonderful thing, I love, who we are, where we've come. I love the whole Calvary Chapel movement and the story of just an, an old dude that goes down to the beach and is sharing the gospel with a bunch of hippies that would rather just surf, do drugs, and sleep around. I love that about our past. But what I don't want to do is live in the old glory days of the Jesus movement. One, because I wasn't even a part of it, right? Some people think you have to be from California to be a part of a Calvary Chapel. Nope, born and raised Missouri, Sorry. Wasn't a hippie down on the ocean, nope. I love that about our past story. And I never wanna forget that, but we need to press into what's the new thing that God wants, because he still wants to work in and through us. But if we only wanna look at who we were, then we're gonna lose sight of who God is calling us to be today. I mean, think of Esther, it's the exact same thing. For such a time as this. We look at our culture and we think, oh man, this is just getting worse. What are we going to do? He's called us. We didn't get to pick where we were born. We didn't get to pick when we were born. He has called us to be his church in a culture that it is. He's called us to respond faithfully with his word, with grace, and with truth. Such a time as this. And so we, we need to press into what is God continuing to do here in and through us at Calvary. One commentator put it talking about Sardis. It was a perfect model of an inoffensive Christianity, right? There are some times that I'll say, hey, this might offend you, and you're welcome. I love, uh, I think it was Wesley started the Methodist movement, not to get too deep into that, but when he started the Methodist movement, he would go to different towns and ride in and he would preach the gospel. And he said, if they don't run me out of town, I questioned if I really preached the gospel. Like the cross is already offensive enough to the morals, the standards, the values of a lost, broken world around us. The cross is offensive. We don't need to make it more offensive. Now, and that's the problem is we as Christians can be offensive, but let's be offensive in the gospel, maybe not in our politics. Let's be offensive in the gospel, not in how we think people should live their lives. We need to allow time and space for the Holy Spirit to process and to work. We need to to give space for people to process the Holy Spirit working in their lives, where we would look at somebody and say, oh, I think this is what you need to do with your life. And it's like, Maybe that's what the Lord wants to do in your life, but we want this person walking in dependency upon Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. And it might look different. It might be a different thing than you, and that's okay. That what you might see in somebody's life is the greatest need for transformation isn't what the Holy Spirit sees as the greatest need for transformation in someone's life. And so, yes, Christianity is massively offensive. I and without diluting it either. See, there's the other side of it. We can be horribly offensive where the gospel isn't, but then other times we can, because we know the gospel is so offensive, we try to water it down, right? We take the blood of Jesus and we water it down. to a good VBS Kool-Aid where it loses its flavor. And we try to make it really easy and comfortable. And if we do that, what are we really calling people to be a part of? Like, if we're not distinct from the world around us, then what do we have to speak to them? Like, we, we are called to, to pull people out of that, not to jump in there and join them and say, oh, here we are, uh, we're all in this together. No, it's a salvation from, not just a salvation to. And so the gospel is absolutely offensive to sinners. Why are we trying to make it not or sometimes even more. We just allow the Word to do what the Word does. The Word's gonna cut on its own. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You just lay it out there. People are gonna cut themselves on it, and that's good. We don't need to go in there swinging and going crazy and stabbing. Just, Just bring the Word. Just be faithful in it. I know, but I wanna cut that out of their life. Yeah, but you're the worst surgeon that doesn't need to be handling that scalpel, right? But we do have a great physician. And he's real good with it. He's real good with it. We, and it is going to be offensive. It's going to be painful, right? Because we're, we're trying to cut out the thing that is causing death to our lives and to those around us. Yeah, that's going to hurt. That's going to be painful. Even the process of healing isn't that fun. Anybody ever be operated on? You don't wake up and be like, oh, this is good. Well, you might until the drugs wear off, right? <laughs> Once the drugs wear off, then you're hitting that button like you're on Jeopardy, just trying to, you know... <laughs> but we need to allow the word of God to work in people. And so we need to faithfully respond in it. And so this church in Sardis, you know, look at the end of verse one and the beginning of verse two. Jesus says, I know your works. You have this this reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You need to wake up. You need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. See, this church in Sardis, who is dead asleep and decaying. One of, my, uh, one of my favorite authors, he was talking about growing up as a teenager at church, and their church had a balcony where the teenagers would go up there, and normally they would sneak out, go to the convenience store, get snacks, and get back before the service was done. He talked about if church is that boring, if God's that boring, I, I want something a little bit more in life. Ooh, be boring about anything else. Don't be boring about the gospel. And he said, and I love this quote, If someone had a heart attack on a Sunday morning, the paramedics would have to take the pulse of half the congregation before they would find the dead person. have a half-dead church. It's decaying, it's sleeping, and Jesus is saying, we need to wake up. Where is that passion that you had at the beginning? I mean, think about when you were young and in love, passionately in love with your spouse. Then after about 10, 20 years, the passion is gone. It's like, we never even go on a date night anymore. You never give me a pedicure anymore. You never cook. You never, we've lost our passion. We've lost the zeal to want to serve and, and to overly express our love for one another in the same sense that happens in the church. We get comfortable in who we are and the passion just begins to drop. And before you know it, we're this half-dead church where we all have to walk around and check our pulse because what we're not seeing is a vibrant, zealous faith for the Lord. Like, so a little bit of my nursing background, I was at clinicals one time and I, I was uh, assigned to this older nurse, right? And she would be okay for me to say older. Some of you guys get offended by that, hey, you're welcome. She had seen a thing or two, and those were the fun ones to talk to, right? Like, she's been through every department in the hospital, all kinds of crazy stories. And there was, there was something that's called a pericardial thump, right? So uh, she had a patient stand up, and the heart stopped. And something you do is run over there, and you just punch this person as hard as you can right in the chest, and that'll start that heart back, Right? Or maybe you've seen it in movies where they got like that long needle like epinephrine. You just got to stab a dude right in the chest and, you know, inject some medicine just to wake them back up. Well, she I mean, she's a small, frail, and she said this big dude of a guy stood up to get something, and his heart monitor just went flat, and he's starting to go. And she goes running in there and just, boom, right in the chest, bruised him massively, but gave him a pericardial thump, and it woke him back up. It started his heart right back up. See, some of us as a church need that kind of a hit to our spiritual hearts. See, Sardis needs a pericardial thump spiritually because they've lost their heart for Jesus. And see, that's the really hard part about that because, you know, we need people in our lives that are willing to do that. You know, if if that nurse was so scared to run in there and punch a dude right in the chest, then he would have just fell flat dead. And when we do that, what we're also, and I think one of the reasons why we're so fearful to bring that accountability to one another, because if I'm willing to run in there and punch you in the chest, then I'm also giving you the invitation that if my heart becomes dead, if I come apathetic and complacent, I need you to punch me. But we're so worried about bruising each other that we're not focused on as our heart beating for Jesus. And that's what we need though. We need to wake up, we need to strengthen what remains. It's almost like our heart, we're about to die, we're on life supports. We need that injection, not of epinephrine, not of you know, this uh, produced response to the Lord, but a true move of God in our lives. It's not an an outward thing, okay, I just need to clap more, I need to jump more, I need to put my hands up and worship more, I need to, no, 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 no. I need to surrender. And, And what he says here is we need to remember, we need to receive what we heard, we need to keep, we need to repent. Like a true move of God where that's gonna really take place in our life is always gonna be led first with repentance. And everyone here, pastor included, has an area in our life or our lives as a whole that Jesus is calling us to repentance in. There's not one of us that have made it, that there's no need for repentance in our life, that we need to remember who Christ is, we need to remember his word, we need to keep it, that's present tense, that's not a past tense thing, it's present tense, we need to repent of that. That we all have that same work, that same call that is upon us. And so that call to be watchful, you remember how they were? Sardis was taken over twice because they had that overconfidence? Oh no, that'll never happen to me. I'm a strong Christian. Pride comes before the fall. The, 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 as soon as I hear, oh, that'll never happen to me, just give it time, and it's about every time. It'll happen to you. Oh, I would never do that. Just give it time. We have to understand who we are. We have to understand how easily we can fall into sin. And so, we need to be watchful. We need to be watchful and remember how, just how they were conquered, having that overconfidence, but also we need to be watchful and looking at the things where we're, we're prone to wander. Like I know in my life right now, there's things that I am prone to wander in, so I need to put up guardrails in my life to keep me from wandering into those pastures. Oh, but the grass is so green and poisonous. And I need to put those guardrails in my life. I need people in my life that when they see me walking over to that fence, looking over at that grass, looking pretty green, looking pretty good, they'll walk up and they'll punch me right in the heart. Now, if one of you, after the service, walks up and swings at me, I'm telling you, our security team will drop you. (laughs) But pastor, I'm just following in obedience. But we need to strengthen what remains. And so when you hear that, understand the word of mercy that is there. Not all is lost. (laughs) You're on life support. But there's still opportunity. There's still a call for you to repent. Why? Because I have not found your works complete. Meaning there's still a move of God. There's still a work that Jesus has for you that he wants you to walk in obedience to. I love everything that we have done, even as of recent. But we're not gonna rest on what we have done We're gonna remember that, we're gonna praise the Lord for that, we're gonna learn from it, but we're gonna press into the fullness of what Jesus has for us. What's that next move of God? What's that fresh bread that you have for us, Jesus? We're always gonna keep looking because we know our works individually and we know our works as a church, we're not done, we're not done. The assignment is not over. We haven't fully completed, there's not one Christian, there's not one church that has fully completed the call that God has on their life. Now, the season might change, the directives might change, but we are are soldiers serving Jesus, and we just need our next mission. What's the next deployment that Jesus has for us? And so he's looking at the Sardis and he says, he tells him, I have not found your works to be complete. You are not at capacity or fullness. You know, people are looking at Calvary and be like, oh, pastor, when are you going to start closing up the doors? Never. I have no desire to stand at the door and say, I'm sorry, we're full up. You're going to have to go to another church. Now, I will say, hey, if, you, if you're not growing here, if you're not connecting uh, with the Lord, and, and you just, like, if you're just sitting in the pew, just to sit in a pew, there, there's five other churches on the road I would highly recommend finding a church where you would grow. I used to tell our youth students that. Like, if you're just showing up because mom and dad drop you off, if you don't like it here, I'll introduce you to another youth pastor. I would rather you be somewhere else where you will grow and be obedient and vibrant in your faith to Jesus apart from Calvary, than to stay here and be stagnant and apathetic. Absolutely. Because it's not about us. Seek first the kingdom of God. It's not about what Calvary is doing. We're going to seek first the kingdom. Because if we focus on the kingdom, we know God will take care of Calvary. So we're going to focus on the kingdom. Because we know our works are not complete yet. We're not at capacity. We're not at fullness. And we're going to quit resting on on our past. Because think of it this way, if all that matters is what we have done, then Jesus would have already returned. If we've completed the assignment and we've done everything that the Lord has for us, then why hasn't he raptured the church up? We're still here, we still have pulse. Everybody check your pulse so I know who to send the paramedics to. No, some of you did that, thank you, I appreciate that. be like, definitely not me. Did if we still have a pulse, then we still have a work to do. Now let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You're never too old. Retirement, maybe from a physical job, is perfect and wonderful and I love that for you. But not from your spiritual responsibility of being a follower of Jesus. There is no retirement. If anything, Paul would say you need to press in harder because you know that day is approaching more. And so it doesn't matter how old you are. Now, does does the Lord know I'm not 21? Absolutely. He's omniscient. He knows I'm not 21. I can't do things that I used to in 21 when I was 21, like eat spicy food after like six o'clock. Heartburn. Who would have thought, right? That's a horrible thing. And some of you that are chronologically advanced, because I can't say old, you guys aren't making sounding, you know, getting old sound real fun. And so I'm Lord, pressing into your return anytime that you want to take me out of here before I have like bad knees and hips, like I'm down. But the Lord knows I'm not 21 anymore and I can't do what I used to. I'm a little bit old. He gets that. But there's still a work for us. There's still something that God has for our lives. And so you are never too old for a fresh move of God in your life. And take it to the other spectrum, especially talking to the parents. You little ones, you kids, you teenagers, you're never too young either. Because kids don't get a half dose or a micro dose of the Holy Spirit. That we're never too young either to serve the Lord. And so sometimes it might be like, well I don't know what I can do, I'm only 11 or I'm only a teenager. Read scripture. There was a lot that the Lord would do in and through young people. I believe most of the disciples were teenagers outside of Peter. And there's a little bit of biblical precedence for that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, teenagers. So we are never too young to serve the Lord and have a mighty move done in and through us. And we're never too old either. That we wanna press in to the fullness that we have. We know what the issue is. As long as I don't move, we don't think that'll happen. But I'm a peacock. I got to fly, man. I can't. (laughs) Quit moving. You can't. I can't. So we need to press in. What is that that God has for me? Yeah, he's done great moves in my life. But what's that next thing? what's that next thing? Because if I still have a pulse, God is still wanting to work and move in me. What is that fullness? Because when you compare, like we've been looking at the descriptions of Jesus and how it pertains to the different church that he's talking to, you look at Jesus and it says, he has the seven spirits of God, which is a, a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars is a reference to the fullness of the church. So Jesus has a fullness of the Holy Spirit and he has a fullness of the church, but what he doesn't see in Sardis is a fullness of obedience to them. And so if the Lord has the full Holy Spirit and he has the full church in his hands, he wants to see a fullness from us. And so we need to remember the word of God. We need to keep it and repent and change and transform and trans- move our lives to it that we need to remember the word of God, receive it and obey it. So some of those spiritual disciplines, those are good things to read the word and study the word and meditate on the word and to memorize the word. Those are good spiritual disciplines. To pray, to intercede on the behalf of one another and even at times when we don't even know what to pray and so we allow the Holy Spirit to intercede on our behalf and say, I don't even know what to say because I'm so grieved or, and frustrated with this situation, pray on my behalf. That, that's a good thing to do, to serve one another, to fellowship with one another, to share the word of God with one another. Those are good things. Those are spiritual disciplines for us, but those are not an end in themselves. Those disciplines bring out the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the spirit that God wants to see in and through us in our normal everyday lives. It doesn't matter what your occupation is, doesn't matter who signs your check or even if you get one. But what does God want to do in and through me? Am I fully living surrender to Him? I think about like if you're married, think about your wedding ceremony or at least all of us have maybe have been to a wedding, you're gonna stand up there, and every time there's gonna be some kind of connotation that you will forsake all others and be fully and wholly devoted to this one person, and so when we see the marriage as is, I think even more of an analogy, more than just an analogy of Christ in the church, that we are going to forsake all other things and live fully and wholly unto Jesus. So that same fullness he wants to see in us. And then we get to verse five. Some of you probably read that and think, ooh, I wonder where he's going with this. Let's have some fun. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So we read that and we're like, well, the book of life, we understand, you know, that's the, that's the book if we're allowed into heaven or not, if we have salvation or not. And Jesus is saying, I will never blot that name out. So does that mean that he can blot that out? Does that mean our name is written in the book of life in pencil? And the Lord has a big old fat pink eraser and he's just ready to, you know, and sometimes we use that as fear tactics. That's not good. Don't do that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Definitely don't do that as a parent. Imagine saying to your kid, "You better clean your room, or Jesus is gonna block your name right out of that book of life." Right? Don't do that. That's not good. Just yeah, don't do that. And so, what is Jesus talking about here? What what's the reference that he's talking? So we have to understand that it was written to a culture that probably operated a little bit different than us today. And we have to understand that culture. And then the fullness of what he's saying really comes to life. So in a, in a culture that Roman citizenship was very high, like think about Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen, but he didn't, he didn't lead in his citizenship first. He led in his identity in Christ. He merely used his citizenship when it was needed for the advancement of the gospel. And there's a whole sermon there, but don't allow your nationality. Like, I love our country. I love my country. My grandpa, my dad fought for this country. I love the freedoms of our country. But that's not my identity. That does not surpass my identity in Christ that my citizenship as an American should be used just as Paul used his Roman citizenship for the advancements of the kingdom, for the advancement of the word of God. And But every city would have a register book. So every city would have a book, and they would list everybody that lived in that city. They had a census. That made sense. And there was only about two reasons that your name would be removed out of that register book, either death or criminal charges, that would remove somebody's name, and so Jesus is taking this idea that you, you you're you're on you're on death row right now, you are in life support. This church is about to die. It doesn't matter the reputation that you have. Like you're circling the drain, and Jesus is going to say it in a much harder way. He's not saying that your name's going to be blotted out, but death is one of the things that removes your name from that city's register. Don't go dying on us. You need to turn and respond in faith, that he's he's looking for a response of life and passion and and a zeal unto the Lord. And so this idea that this, you know, this is really bad verse to use for evangelism, like, hey, you better, uh, you know, give your life to the Lord. He's gonna blot your name out of the book of life. And that's not where it's at. He's calling a church that's circling the drain to wake up, to strengthen what remains and is about to die. That's what he wants to see in and through this church here in Sardis. Now there's one more theological uh, point that we could talk about that, that if we disagree, we probably need to break fellowship. Uh, I fully believe a McDonald's fountain Coke is absolutely the best. Some of you are like, what's he getting ready to talk about? Break fellowship? Fountain McDonald's Coke is absolutely the best, right? Can I get an amen up in here, somebody? Okay, thank you. Is there a remnant of righteousness here, please? You know, you get a couple of those hot fries, but then they hand you that cold Coke. You pop that straw in and you just don't sip it. Not that first time. No, you take like five gulps, right? Like you're, you're drinking half of it. And it's so cold and then the burn Oh, the burn going down is amazing. You get done and your eyes are watering and you're just like, you never feel more alive than at that moment right there. Amen. And how horrible is it when they hand you that? And that's the expectation. Like you, th- you yearn for the burn. You know what I mean? Like you're, I didn't mean to rhyme that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but you want that. And then they hand you that cup and it's cold and, and you pop the straw in and you take a drink and it's flat. Is there anything more disappointing in life? Like, you just take that cup and throw it right back in the drive-thru. Like, you just throw it right back into the store. Like, you could take your flat pop, I'm going somewhere else. Like, it's so disappointing. And that's the same that Jesus wants to see in us. This expectation of this vibrant, zealous relationship and passion for the Lord. That's what I want to see but how many times do we as Christians, and even sometimes it affects whole churches, do we lose our fizz? That we become this flat pop? It's like, yeah, I guess it's Coke, but I don't want it. And they lose their fizz. And how sadly ironic that this, you know, being this nearly dead as a church is preaching new life in Christ. Yeah, they're going through the motions. There's no doctrinal issues here. They're not under attack, but they're also not walking in faith and obedience to Jesus. May it never be said of us. May we never become stale and flat, but that we would never lose our fizz. And there's things that we needed to keep our fizz, like Bible study and prayer and serving and sharing the gospel to others. Because as we're doing that, we're sharing the gospel. We're preaching the gospel to ourselves. Those things are good so that we don't lose our fizz. But, you know, like with any pop, you just let it sit out and don't do anything to it. don't add anything to it. If it just sits there, it's just going to continually grow flat. And the same thing in our life. We're just going to go through the motions and we're just going to, we're just going to slowly grow flat. And we're going to lose that very thing that we want to be unto the Lord, and for one another. Like, there's people in my life, man, that I, I love being around them because I mean, they bring some fizz to the party, right? Like Cliff, Cliff is a fizzy guy to me, <laughs> right? You, that's a biblical word right there. That's Greek right there, right? Like, I love being around Cliff. There's a fizz about him, you know? He's always encouraging, always keeping his eyes on the Lord. Like, there's a fizz about him that even people, believer or unbeliever, Somebody that doesn't even know the Lord. They just, I love being around that person. Why? Because I have hope and, and, and a love and a passion. Like, well, who is, I mean, when they ask, like, well, why are you the way that you are? They're asking you, share the gospel with me. Why do you have so much fizz in your life? His name is Jesus. Like, we want to be a fizzy church. And, and the reward here, like, it's kind of crazy. You know, every church gets a, a reward. Like, hey, to the one who conquers, You know, his name was never blot his name out of the book of life. We talked about that. And we will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He will be clothed in white garments. Like, what's that mean to walk with Jesus? I thought as believers, we already are walking with Jesus. And this is one of those tension kind of moments that we're walking with the Lord in our lives. But if we conquer and we keep our fizz, we pour into our life the discipline so that the fruit of the Spirit would grow to a fullness in us. That we would walk in obedience to the good works that he has prepared beforehand. Ephesians 2.10 says that we're going to walk with Jesus on that side of glory. I don't know what that means. I don't know where Jesus is walking. I don't know where we're going but I wanna go. We have a dog named Dill, I like Dill, she's my favorite. And we can't say the W word around her. She, she only speaks about three words of English and one of them is walk, and we'll look at her, you wanna go for a walk? She doesn't know where we're going, she just wants to be with us. So I don't know where Jesus is going on this walk, but if he's the one promising that we get to walk with him in white garments, like I'm down, white's not really my color, right? You know, you look at my closet, my wife yells at me, you own blue, black, and gray. Amen, woman, right? As I got a blue shirt on. I'm going to walk with Jesus in white garments. I don't know fully what that means, but I'm down. And my name's going to be in the book of life. I got to think about that. Is that my birth name or is that, you remember talking about the other church that gets a new name written on a white stone? Like, which name is it going to be? You know, so think about that when you're naming your kids. Like, Jesus is going to write that name in a book. You better spell it right. You know, Jesus up there, you're like, you guys got some weird names for some kids down there. (laughs) But that might be the name written in the book of life. And I think one of the greatest things, Jesus. Like, we think about, like, what's heaven going to be like? I get that question. What's heaven going to be like? And there's a lot of Hollywood that does really bad trying to show us what heaven is. One of the things that we know from this passage is we think about how heaven is going to be this big worship service and we're just going to be praising God, and that is true. I fully believe that. But this passage also says that Jesus, the Son of God, who came and took on flesh, who went to the cross where you deserve to go, where I deserve to go, took our punishment, who came out of that grave, who ascended into heaven, he's right now seated at the right hand of God. What's this passage say? He will profess our name to the Father, to the angels. It's one of the greatest things is to hear your name called out. I've graduated from a few institutions and I sit there in a cap and gown, the dumbest outfit ever known to man. Don't understand it. Somebody already texted me with a cap, you know, where that came from. Thank you for that. But you're sitting there and one of the greatest things is to hear your name called out for that accomplishment that this was the this was the the battle before you and you've completed it you've conquered kindergarten and so I get to walk across the stage of kindergarten graduation but to hear your name called out from Jesus that he's going to profess your name to the father and to before his angels i don't know what that's going to be like i have no idea But if the Lord is saying, hey, this is something, if you would conquer, I want you to experience this. I mean, how great is it when we get to profess the name of Jesus? And imagine Jesus professing our name to the Father. I don't know what that's going to be like, but I definitely want that to happen. I'm down. I'm going to go with the guy that walked out of the grave on that one. If he's the one saying, hey, I want to profess your name to the Father. You know what? I do too. I want you to as well. And so, look at your life. Look at your own heart and your mind, and where do we need to remember the word? Where do we need to keep it and repent? Where do we need to wake up and strengthen? Because every one of us has that in our lives. Something that needs the strength of the Holy Spirit. Something that we're holding away from God. Somewhere that we're kicking Jesus off the throne of our heart, and we want to sit there. That's not your space. That's not my place to sit. we need to dethrone ourselves and allow Jesus his rightful place. Where have we grown apathetic and complacent in our lives? He wants to cover us in white garments. He wants us to walk with him. He wants to profess our name to the Father. So look at your life. Conquer this. Lead and lean into this, what Jesus has for you. So, Father, we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to come into your house, to come together as the body of Christ. And I pray individually, I pray corporately that we would do just that, that we would take an honest look at our lives. Where are we wandering away from you? Where are we missing the fullness that you have? Where have we become comfortable in our lives? Lead us out of that. Put guardrails around us that we would continue to walk in fullness. That we would continue to walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand. So what is that next work that you have for us as a church? What's that next work you have for us as individuals, Lord? That we can continually profess your name. Give us that kind of strength, that kind of obedience, Lord. Lead us, guide us, we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. Amen.